0: Hi, I'm Anna Robinson with the children's ministry, and I'm reading Nehemiah 4, 7 through 14. When the Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Assetites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going to be forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space between the wall, in open places, I stationed the people beside, by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and, who fights for your, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes.
1: Good stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the truth embedded in this passage, Lord, would be illuminated to our thinking and and assimilated into our lives in the way that you desire it to be. So, Lord, uh, anyone who has dedicated their life to living for you, for your glory, to answer the call, that you've placed upon each of us. It's gonna result in opposition and challenge and trials and failures and a whole slew of experiences. But Lord, to the one who keeps their eye upon the prize, the upward call, the one who perseveres, the one who doesn't grow weary in well-doing, we will not fail to reap what we have sown. So Lord, for the discouraged in heart this morning, I pray that you would blow fresh wind into their sails and that they would realize that the things that have encumbered their hearts, that have robbed them of the joy and the strength that they once enjoyed, that those things can be revived in them And they can be renewed and reinvigorated. Lord, to put their hands to the plow. Laboring for you, knowing that our labor in you is not in vain. It matters, and it matters for more than just this short life. It goes on through eternity. So speak to us from the word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Nehemiah. Hey, uh, just a reminder, we are launching a midweek service next year, January 10th. And so, yeah, we are excited about that. And we think it's going to be a very fruitful time. Well, in our story um, in Nehemiah, we have the Jews find themselves infiltrated and surrounded by peoples who hate them and who desire them eradicated from the land. Uh, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is their mantra. And no, that's not today. That is today's headline, but it's also the headline from 444 BC as the story uh, has not changed a whole lot over time. And so, Nehemiah, a Persian, a Jewish Persian, heard about the plight of Jerusalem and of God's people there. And he traveled 800 miles to Jerusalem to rebuild a wall that would enable God's people to live and worship God in in relative safety. And like the Jews of today, the Jews in 444 BC, didn't initiate the conflict and the animosity that was towards them. Uh, They didn't attack the surrounding peoples. They weren't a a warring kind of a people in that way. They simply began to renew and develop the, the land that God had given them. That's all they did. And it had been a dump. It had been a desolate heap of ruins for years and years. The the Israeli land uh, and Jerusalem itself was just a heap of ruins. And it was only when they began building, when they began renovating, when action started to happen, that the enemies jumped in and began to attack. It was envy and malice. It was a good bit of perhaps satanic influence mixed in that caused the surrounding peoples to attack God's people, the Jews. And so too, Israel, then known as Palestine, was desolate, an ugly, uh, God-forsaken land for many, many centuries. Uh, it was given the name Palestine by the Emperor Hadrian. In the year 135 AD, Hadrian had essentially driven all the Jews out of Jerusalem and out of the land and basically forbid them to come back. And he then named the land Palestine from the word Philistine, who was the the great enemy of Israel in days gone by. So it was a word of mockery. and of We're going to put the name Philistine on this land just to mock the Jews who used to live here. Well, Mark Twain traveled there in 1866, and from his travels, he wrote his famous book, Innocence Abound. And he says about the land of Palestine, quote, of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine sits on sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. And he goes on and on, by, about how ugly and desolate Palestine slash Israel is. I mean, it's just an ugly, deserted place with a few pockets of people and, uh, and shepherds and so on living there. So the land remained in that condition until the first wave of Jewish immigrants began to return to the land from 1882 to 1903, known as the first wave of Aliyah. Aliyah means to go up or to return to the land. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up. It's always you go up to Jerusalem. So, Aliyah, the first wave of a few thousand Jews, comes into the land, in and around Jerusalem, because persecution was happening of the Jewish people in Romania and other parts of Europe and so they began to go back to the land of their fathers well in oh 1917 the Balfour declaration happened and british control of took over for the ottomans and they controlled the land and they declared the Palestine land slash to become Israel eventually. They declared that a place for the Jews to be able to come. And and it would be a national home, not a nation yet, but a national home for the Jewish people because of all the persecution that was happening. And then it was 1948 when Israel was finally declared an official nation once again, May 14th, 1948. It became a sovereign nation. And the land was, was still quite desolate and barren in many places, but it began to bloom and it began to prosper. And immediately after Israel became a nation on May 14th, 1948, what happened on May 15th, 1948? An alliance of five Arab nations attacked Israel on May 15th, the day after they became a nation. And that war would go on for some time and Israel would prevail. And the intentions of those Arab nations, which were Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, here's what their intention was. This was declared by Azam Pasha, the Secretary General of the Arab League, quote, It will be a war of annihilation. It will be a momentous massacre in history that will be talked about like the massacres of the Mongols or the Crusades. That didn't work out so well for them. Israel won the conflict. And there have been many other wars and conflicts since. So here we are today. We're 75 years out from Israel being declared a nation. And Israel's become a a vibrant, prosperous nation in spite of all the hatred towards them. It's a world leader in agriculture and technology. It has one of the most powerful militaries on planet Earth. The contributions of Israel to the world in just the last 75 years are staggeringly out of proportion to the size of the country. I mean, it's crazy what that people has done. And once again, the nations gather around them and hate them and attack them. Satan hates the Jews and has used one nation after another to try and destroy them. And the Bible predicts that Satan will try to destroy them again before the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Does Satan hate the Jews so much? What is the deal? Well, listen, it's pretty straightforward. It really is. We shouldn't overcomplicate this. God chose the Jews to be the people through whom through whom, would come the knowledge of the true and living God. This one, People would be the people through whom God would deliver the knowledge of himself to the world. And through the Jews would come the scriptures, the Bible that we have in our phones probably this morning. And most importantly, through the Jews would come the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So this one people group, this ethnos, the Jews... In John chapter 4, do you remember Jesus and the disciples? They, they were down in the Jerusalem area and down at the Jordan, baptizing, was all this kind of stuff. But they're getting ready to head back up north. They were from the Galilee region, right? And so they're getting ready, ready to travel back the 75 or 80 miles north on foot. But this time Jesus... Took them on the king's highway. That was the the mountaintop route back to Jerus or to uh, Galilee. Normally, they would go down to the Jordan and take the low route back. And the reason that Jews did that is they avoided the king's highway because that was going through Samaritan country. Samaritan country. The Samaritans were. Well, they weren't very fond of the Jews, (laughs) nor were the Jews fond of the Samaritans. And Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. And this group of people, the Samaritans, they came about, they formed after the Syrian conquest, Uh, of Israel in 721 BC. And certain people from the nation of Israel stayed behind in the land up in that northern Israeli land. And the people intermarried with Assyrians in that period after 721. And those uh, progeny, the children coming from the Jewish Assyrian marriages would become known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans would build their own religious system there. They would build a temple on Mount Gerizim. They would would have a whole worship system with sacrifices. They would, uh, they recognize only the first five books of the Bible, the the Moses books, the Torah. And they would worship on Mount Gerizim. Well, you remember Jesus with the disciples going north on the King's Highway in Samaria, comes to a little town called Sychar. And Sychar, outside of it, was a, a well that Jacob built many 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 years before and Jesus sends the disciples to get food and he stops to get water and as he does there's a woman coming out from Sychar to the well and Jesus says hey would you draw me some water and she goes sure and then Jesus says well if you knew the water I had you'd ask me for water to drink I have the living water she's like, whoa, I would like some of that water. And he says, well, go get your husband. She's like, well, I'm not married. Oh, you're right, you're not. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. And she's like, ooh, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she does something so interesting. She says, hey, you Jews... You say Jerusalem is the place where God's supposed to be worshipped, but we Samaritans, we say it's Gerizim, right there. And you can see it. You can see Mount Gerizim. When we go to Israel, we go to Jacob's well. And Jesus says, listen, here's the story. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship God. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know for salvation, John 4 22. For salvation is from the Jews, says the Jewish Messiah Jesus. Salvation is from the Jews. So, Is it any wonder then that Satan hates the Jews? Is it any wonder? Satan wanted to prevent the Savior from coming into the world via the Jews the first time, and he wants to prevent Jesus from coming a second time because Jesus will come once again to Israel, and he will save the Jews from a, 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 a persecution worse than it's ever known before, And it's then that Jesus will set up his millennial kingdom in Jerusalem and be seated on the throne of David and rule in the millennial kingdom. So, here we are and we have this bizarre, irrational hatred of the Jews happening all over planet Earth as we speak. Even even the LGBTQ community has come out in solidarity with Gaza and with Hamas. Now, hey, we're all rooting for there to to be little loss of life, but we're also, and you were here, when was I did that message on war? Two weeks ago, I think, that war is necessary for the, the dealing with evil that will not cease on this side of the eschaton. And it's an ugly reality of life on planet Earth. It has been from the beginning. And so we want all people, Jew and Gentile, to come to know Jesus as their savior. But listen, strange enemies have become friends because they have a common enemy. Perhaps the LGBTQ folks are unaware that Hamas is not a fan of them that were they to go to Gaza, they would likely end up imprisoned if not dead. Not a lot has changed over the centuries and it's fascinating that, you know, um, LGBTQ folks, a lot of them have fled to Israel in that region because there's just greater civil rights and, and so on. Well, in our story, We find Nehemiah and his fellow Jews surrounded by people who have an irrational hatred of them. The Jews didn't attack anybody, they're just building up the dump that is Jerusalem. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend." That's a saying that rings true, as we'll see. The Jews have gotten now, to this point, they've gotten halfway through the building of the wall. It's halfway built, and their enemies are now growing in number and in people group, and they are mad. And so for those of you who are in a leadership role in any way, and that's gonna be most of you, for those of you who desire to serve the Lord with your life, and answer the call of God upon your life, there's a few things we want to think through. Nehemiah is a masterclass in leadership. And you know, this, this book has spoken into my life um, pr- perhaps more than any other in, relates, uh, in relationship to leadership. So the first thing I draw to your attention this morning from our passage is that God is not the author of confusion. God is not the one who confuses things. God brings clarity to things. Verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So now, the city was completely surrounded by enemies. To the north was Sanballat and the Samaritans. To the east, Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south, Geshem and the Arabs. To the west, the Ashdodites. So the numbers of the enemies have grown and they're all working in concert now to destroy God's people through violence and or confusion. Violence and or confusion, and we'll see how Nehemiah deals with the threat of violence here in a moment, but what do you do when the enemies are spreading lies about you and slandering you? When they're talking about you, when they're getting on social media, and they're saying things that are not true, and some people are buying into the lies, what do you do when they commandeer and control the narrative that's going on in culture? Hashtag, Nehemiah's a terrorist. Hashtag, Jews are oppressors. And so on. Here's what happens. You'll have some people who won't buy into that. They're not weak minded people who who have their thinking shaped by some message, some narrative that's being promoted. They see through that stuff. They're strong minded people. A lot of you guys are strong-minded. You don't, you don't just buy into the stuff that's floating across the airwaves or the stuff. It's like, no. And you'll have a bunch of other people who are just confused and they won't know what to think. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, Nehemiah is saying one thing and, and the other leaders are saying another thing and Nehemiah isn't attacking them or responding. So I don't know, I don't know, I'm confused. Maybe I'll quit, I don't like this. To them, things are just muddy and they're confusing and that's what was happening. God is not the author of confusion. So please notice that Nehemiah didn't respond to the false narratives. He didn't go around to defend his reputation and honor. One of the the hardest things that you as a leader are, are going to face is an attack upon your reputation. This will be one of the hardest things you face. It can be torturous to think that people are being told things about you that aren't true it can it can be so painful to know that people are thinking things about you that 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 is absolutely false especially people that you respect when somebody you respect th- thinks something bad about you that isn't true that is that's a hard pill to swallow how do you deal with it I remember hearing Pastor Chuck Smith very early on in my Christian life. It was at a conference. And he said, if you want to defend yourself, God will let you. He will. But if you want God to defend you, you need to step back from defending yourself and let Him. If we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. Because here's what will happen. If you decide that, man, there's all this talk going on, and, and I'm going to get on the phone, I'm going to try and straighten it all out, and I'm going to let them know, that's not true, that's not true, I never said that, or I never did that, and then I'm going to get on the phone, and I'm going to keep calling, and, and so and try trying to iron the thing out. Then all of a sudden, you're away from what God has called you to do, and you're spending all your try- time trying to put out the fires, and you're not on the wall leading the people, getting the work done. Sanballat and Tobiah, they they already ridiculed Nehemiah, accused him of being a despised and worthless worthless human being. That's chapter 219. They accused him of rebellion against King Artaxerxes. And that's the kind of trash that they've been talking and spreading. And it's completely untrue. So when you, listen, when you decide to serve the Lord and to do something significant with your life, that, you can expect this. It's going to come with the territory. And how you deal with it matters. Do you remember that pathetic little critic of David, Shimei? This is later in David's life, Shimei's, or David is leaving Jerusalem and the throne in Jerusalem with some of his men because his son Absalom has staged a coup, humiliating David, David leaves, and uh, was making his way north with some of his guys. And this guy, Shimei, is, is over a ways away. He's throwing rocks at David and, and he's cursing him and, and just shouting derogatory things about him. And, and Shimei, you need to know, he was related to King Saul, whom David replaced, right? And so, so Shimei is saying, get out, get out, you bloody, worthless piece of filth, David. God is paying you back for what you did to King Saul. Your evil is coming back on you. Karma, dude. It's fascinating that Shimei was accusing David of the very thing he was most innocent of. And that's, that's the way the enemy often works. No one was more innocent of the blood of Saul than David was. Saul was trying to kill David. Remember, Chase him around the wilderness, trying to kill him. David had opportunity to kill Saul and refused to. And yet that's exactly where Shimei brought his accusation. Don't be surprised when you are accused of the very thing that you are most innocent of. And it hits you and it hurts you. And where it hurts, that's a little sign there's pride in there. Jesus, the Bible says, made himself of no reputation. Jesus wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about his father's smile. And that was enough for the Lord. How do you handle opposition and unjust criticism? How, do, you know, do you defend yourself? Do you get on the phone and start calling? Do you get on social media and try and spread? You know, what do you do? Well, for the most part, Nehemiah ignores all the scuttlebutt and the slander and all the rest. How, how could Nehemiah not be eaten up by it and just be torn, I can, you know, I can't let this happen? Well, simple. Like Jesus, he was only concerned with God's opinion. Now, this is, this is the hard part of discipleship, gang, and, the, the, you know, when Jesus said, except you take up your cross, you cannot follow me and be my disciple. Okay, this is what it looks like taking up your cross. In 1 Peter 2.19, listen to this. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing or, or uh, how, how would we put that? It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing when a person is mindful of God. They're, they're, they're not worried about it, what anybody, but they're thinking about God. What, what are you concerned about God in this situation? When mindful of God, they endure sorrow, suffering unjustly. So they're not suffering because of something stupid they did, but they're being attacked in some way unjustly, and it's beautiful to God. Verse 20, for what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, a beautiful thing of wonder, a joy-producing thing. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't go on social media to set the record straight. He didn't go on a campaign He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Father, you judge justly. Nobody gets away with anything ever. The judgment throne of God will not miss anything. (laughs) Nobody slips one by. Christian, you've been called to suffer for doing good. Just like Jesus. That's Jesus stuff. That's take up your cross kind of stuff. Shimei was a resentful little dude, and what he said about David was a lie. But you know, David embraced the affliction as though it was from the hand of God. So this is a crazy thing. You, you know that story? David said to his men who wanted to go over and kill that little punk. Right? They're just like, can, please, can I go remove his head from his body and be done with that little guy so he doesn't say anything any longer? And David's like, no. 2 uh, Samuel sixteen ten. Perhaps he's cursing because the Lord has sent him. Now, don't, don't read into that David going, oh, I'm such a sinner and God's punishing. No, that's not what David is saying. David is not that shallow in his understanding and in his theology. David was looking above the instrument of his troubles, the the little dude cursing him, and he was looking to the sovereign God who was sovereign over his life. Like Job, who after the thieves had had robbed him of all all of his wealth. What did Job say? He said, the Lord has taken away. And if you, Christian, if you can get there, where you trust God with your circumstances, that, that nothing touches your life but what first passes through, the, approval, the approving hand of God. If you don't get there, you're doomed to a, a shallow understanding of who God is and what He's desiring to do in your life. The Lord has taken away, Job said. He would say later on, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. David had that kind of bottom line faith. He trusted God enough to afflict him. The Heidelberg Catechism says, all things come to us, not by chance, but by God's hand. David saw God's hand in his present situation. Listen, Jesus' bruisings, Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Those bruisings were part of the Father's good and perfect will. The bruisings that you take and that I take are a part of God's good and perfect will. Yet, you know, to get the, the smell, the scent, the aroma out of flowers, they have, you can get some by just smelling it, but they need to be crushed. And to get purity into metals, to get them to be pure, they have to be heated. And what's true of flowers, what's true of metals is it's true of all Christians. It just is. If we're going to have the aroma of Christ, the sweetness of Jesus, the purity of Jesus in our life, we we have to count on afflictions and know that ultimately it's from the hand of God. Though, yes, it's these enemies, though, yes, Satan is attacking, though those people are lying and all of that. But over it all is our sovereign God who's shaping my life for him. He's the potter, I'm the clay. And I feel him press. And sometimes it's an enemy who's slandering me. I feel him push to get a certain shape of my life. And and it's this other opponent in my life or this satanic thing is happening. And I have to trust the Father. And the the bruising that we go through, it will will purge us of flesh, of pride, of arrogance, of thinking I can straighten it all out and fix it all and all of that. And and we lose the fear at that point of of losing out. We, We learn to let go of what we want and just say, God, your will be done. We're not so easily then provoked by people to, to respond and react. That, that button has been disconnected in us. And we learn to absorb things without retaliation, to accept correction from people without defensiveness. We're able to, to give a soft answer when wrathful words are coming at us. Don't you see, this is the path to godliness and holiness. It makes us calm and strong, and it makes us a good leader. Do you want to be truly influential for the Lord? That's the path. and opposition will cause us to pray. There's, a, there's this incredible verse, Psalm 109, verse four. It says, in return for my love, they accuse me. <laughs> That's what we're talking about, right? You know, I'm just trying to do good stuff here and then I'm getting all this mess coming at me and accusation and criticism and... But then he says, but I give myself to prayer. I give myself to prayer. And the, the interesting thing about this, this Psalm 109 verse four, the ESV has a footnote for the phrase, I give myself to prayer. And the footnote says that, that the literal rendering of the phrase is, in the Hebrew, it's I am prayer. I am prayer. Prayer isn't simply something that's coming out of me, it's something that I am. Prayer becomes the very essence of my life. When I am, you know, being accused by people that I love, there's a hurt so deep that causes my prayer to become so real and so from the core, so honest that I am prayer at that point. How did Nehemiah deal with the threats of violence and all the slander and the lies and the resulting confusion among the peoples? Verse nine, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. He prayed, he led the people in prayer. Opposition is a powerful instrument to develop our relationship with God. It moves us closer to him, it sinks our roots down deeper into him. Nehemiah didn't go around trying to defend himself or set the record straight, he prayed, he led the people in prayer, and this is what people who trust the Lord do. This is what good leaders do. But Nehemiah, watch this, and the people, they didn't only pray, they didn't only pray, they also put in place a 24-7 security team. And it was an open carry situation there in Jerusalem at that point. <laughs> to guard against enemy attack. Now one of those super spiritual type Christians might say, well, prayer is all you need. I mean, if you have enough faith, then, then you don't need to do anything more. Anything beyond is, is just helping God out. It's a lack of faith. And, and I've noticed that these kind of people, and I've run into plenty of them in my life, these kind of people who pray, you know, the, the kind, they pray about going to the bathroom. You know, they like, it's weird. But they don't know their Bibles very well. It's a strange thing. Listen, we pray for God's protection over this place all the time. And over you guys, over our people, people who call Lighthouse home, the people who call school home, the kids who come in five days a week, every day, and we pray for the protection of everyone here. But we also have a security team here at Lighthouse Church, and they are armed, and they are trained, that if, yeah. Because we believe, because we study the Bible, that there's evil people in the world who want to do evil things. And so, yes, we pray, but we set a watch. And we do that. And also, hey, there's a wall. If you haven't noticed, there's a wall around this property with gates on it. That's to control people coming in and out so that we know, because we know there's evil people in this world, and we wanna protect the people that God has entrusted to our care and to our ministry. And so, Nehemiah and the people prayed, and they set guards around the now half-built wall. Well, we've gotta, we've gotta try and land this thing this morning, one, one more thing, maybe two. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta get to this. Discouragement. This has been so on my heart. I've been burdened for those of you who've been discouraged. And discouragement is a, it's, it's a powerful emotion. It's a powerful weapon. It's a debilitating kind of emotion. And it arises inside of us, but it, it, it can be sort of fed from different sources. And so we, we learn here in our text a little bit about if we're feeling discouraged. There, and everybody's gonna feel discouraged from time to time, okay, it's, it's a common thing, but there's certain sources that can feed that discouragement. And, and God forbid, possibly get you off and away from the thing that God's called you to. And that's what Satan wants. So notice verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. So so some of the people there in Judah, they're fixated upon what hasn't been done yet. They're not rejoicing that, oh man, we're halfway done. Woo! They're fixated upon what isn't done yeah, the walls have built, but, but look at all the trash and the rubble that's still everywhere. It's just such a mess here. We'll never be able to finish this. We'll never be able to do it. Listen, anything that's worth doing is, is going to involve messes. Certainly a physical building will, will, a project will involve messes, but spiritual building pro- projects do too. The church is a spiritual building project. Any disciple making ministry is a spiritual building project. And this is Jesus' number one priority in the world, by the way, it's his church, he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's fully aware that it's a messy thing, he really is. We have proverbs about it, where there is no oxen, the manger, the barn, is clean, clean as a whistle. Man, you guys who have an acreage and you've got a barn, you can keep that barn so clean if you just get rid of the animals in there. You'd only have to like sweep it out once a year or something just to get the dust off. But you don't get anything done on your property without the animals. Abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Well, we have tractors now, but you get the idea. Anything involving people is going to be messy. Anyone endeavoring to do something great for the kingdom who, who thinks they will stay sparkly clean in that work is for a rude awakening. That just, it's just not going to happen. And it can be very discouraging when you're trying to accomplish something of value, something of worth. You're pouring into people, and it seems like all you do is deal with rubble and trash and problems and complaints and dysfunction. And why? Is all this happening? I'm just trying to do something valuable. People not doing what they said they were going to do when we started this ministry or this program or whatever, and all of that stuff will be a part of whatever you do. Fixating on it, complaining about it instead of rising above it and keeping your eye on what God has called you to, it will be debilitating to you. It'll be discouraging, of course, fixating on the mess. I always chuckle at people, complain about the church and the problems and the, church. like, what? What, what? what do you think the church is? What do you think the church has been from the jump in the first century? It's humans. But not only that, and we'll end with this one and we'll continue this next week, but discouragement, and this is maybe a little surprising, but it's so true. Discouragement can be fed by people who care about you who do, they, they care about, they're not your enemies. In fact, they're trying to protect you. Watch this, Nehemiah 4.11. Our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So, you know, the enemies are plotting and so on. Now watch this, verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us, you must return to us, you must return to us. So people who weren't involved in the work, but living were living outside in the countryside, the surrounding parts of Jerusalem, they were hearing, oh, the enemies are going to attack, they're going to attack. And so they went to the people who were doing the work and said, you've got to come out to us, you've got to leave, you're in danger. Stop the work. Stop it. And save yourself. You guys have to abandon the work, it's too dangerous. Send Ballad and Tobiah and all those guys are out to get you. Come live with us in the country where you'll be safe. And so, so obviously the people who brought these warnings cared about the people doing the work, fellow Jews, fellow worshipers of Yahweh God, right? They cared about them. But these people unwillingly fed into the discouragement that was already growing inside of the workers. That wasn't their intention, but they obviously, they had elevated safety above the call and the will of God. You may feel like God has called you to do something, and and you're doing it, and the inevitable opposition comes, and messes are made, and discouragement creeps in, and, and it's then That people who care about you because they see you're struggling with this, you're going through that, they'll they'll say something like, you know, maybe, maybe you need to quit. Maybe I mean I I hate to see you going through that kind of thing. You know, maybe it just wasn't meant to be. You may somehow it was a mistake. And and so those, those people who are treated, you know, they shouldn't treat you that way. You shouldn't subject yourself to that kind of thing. And, and, and that person, they're wanting to protect you, right? They, they care about you. What they don't realize is that God has called you. He's called you to that work. Moms have a hard time with this, probably more than anybody. They, they have a hard, moms have a hard time seeing their kids, even if their kids are now 20 or 25 or 30, going through difficulty. They just do, and that never stops. So, so even if a mom is a believer in Jesus, she may have a hard time setting aside her maternal instinct and trust that God has called you and that there are things worth suffering for. There are things worth dying for, actually. Discouragement can be fed in us by people who love and care for us. The Apostle Paul was staying in Caesarea at Philip's house, and he was going, I'm closing here, I promise, and uh, and he was, in a couple weeks, he was going to be making his way to Jerusalem, and while he's at Philip's house, Philip's had the, the four prophetess daughters, and uh, you know, great dude, and Paul was there. I'm sure he was having a, uh, you know, awesome time in the Lord there. And this guy, this prophet of God, Agabus, shows up while Paul is there. And Agabus goes to Paul and says, hey, can I have your belt? And Paul goes, well, okay, and gives him his belt. And Agabus gets down on the ground. He ties Paul's belt around his hands or has somebody help him, ties him, and binds himself up with, with Paul's belt And then says, by the Holy Spirit, I declare that whoever owns this belt is going to be treated like this in Jerusalem by the Gentiles. And everybody's like, oh, no. And Paul's probably going, dude, why the dramatic skit? Did you tell me I'm going to be in trouble in Jerusalem? But everybody's going, oh, Paul, don't go. Don't go. Paul, don't. It's going to be, it's, you're going to suffer there. It's going to be hard. And they tried to talk Paul out of going. Here's what Paul said. Acts 21, 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? What are you, what are you guys doing? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Listen, those who love you may try and talk you out of this thing that God has called you to. Appreciate them for their concern, but let them know that you follow the Lord and you intend to follow him to your dying breath. Let's pray, Lord. There's such a um, there's there's a depth in all of this, <clears throat> and a weight that we can kind of feel that our call to follow you is a is a call that's that really, when we think about it, it's not optional for us. We are your your doulos, your bond slaves. And though there might be all kinds of circumstances that might try and dissuade us from what you're calling us to do, there may be enemies who try and bring a spirit of fear into us to get us away from the work. And we may even have people who love us deeply and who care about us. Try and talk us out of going through the difficulty. But Lord, we don't answer. In the final day, we don't answer, certainly don't answer to our enemies. We don't answer to our parents, we don't answer to our friends, we don't answer to anyone but you. And we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. And Lord, we know that as we do them, there's gonna be opposition, there's gonna be messes. So help us to, to not be carnal, fleshy in our thinking and be in, just sort of fixated upon all of that. Help us to be fixated upon you and the call upon our lives. So that with this short time here on planet Earth, uh, as we see things just kind of shaping up around the world perhaps moving uh, towards a soon return of you Lord here which will be preceded by our being raptured and brought home to the Father's house Lord may we be found in that day uh, with faith faith and trust in you being about our Father's business. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Christian, uh, we went a little long this morning. Uh, It's not my fault. (laughs) Oh, it is my fault. I'll take it, I'll own it. So, you can now make your way to the communion table. If you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, the communion table is not for you. It's only for those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I don't say that to offend you or to exclude you unnecessarily. But that's Jesus' exclusion. That's the Bible's exclusion. So, but here's the, the good news, is that Jesus invites you in to His family. He really does. And He, he will not turn you away. And you have the you have the ability here this morning to say yes to Jesus's invitation. I remember thinking before I became a Christian that I could never be one. <laughs> I mean, I just thought there's no way I could be one of those, you know, because my life is this and I need that and I do things that, whatever. I just couldn't do it. And then when presented with the opportunity to trust in Christ, I just knew that, no, I can can do that. Not not that I can be a Christian, but I can trust in Jesus. And that's that's the invitation of the gospels, to trust in Jesus and Jesus then will do the work in you. And so if you would like to trust in Christ this morning, I want you to pray right now where you're at. Just say, Lord Jesus, I trust in you right now as my Lord and my savior, wash away my sin take over my life. I give it to you now. In your name I pray. Amen.